Hey everyone, welcome back to Office Politics. I am your host, Jasmine Reed Clark, and this is the space where we talk about life after the offer letter. Now, if you are in an office or you are living with someone during the pandemic who typically is in an office, you are very familiar with office lingo, you know, circling back, bumping, uh, digital, digital get down. And it's all pretty ridiculous, um, and yet we all partake in it. I literally rolled my eyes at myself today when I wrote, uh, BC seeing so-and-so to spare her inbox, because that's shit I would say (laughs) in real life, of course. Um, And to just help poke fun at that, but in a sharp, witted, intelligent way, we have our guest and our well, outside of producer Jordan, our first man on the podcast, uh, Mr. Dan Hill. He is an author and an emotional intelligence expert. Yes, it's a thing, and we get deep into it. And we cover a lot of ground. Yes, we talk about his book that is truly hilarious. Jordan and I both read it and loved it. But we also get into emotional intelligence, why your boss is a bully, and really... Um, all that comes with needing to survive off of emotional intelligence and how introverts can do the same. Um, So with that, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's get into it. Hi, Dan. Thank you so much for being here today. Oh, absolutely. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Thank you. Of course. Now, I know that you are a very accomplished author, and we're going to get into your book later today. But for those who may be unfamiliar with your work, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what inspired you to write your latest book? Sure. Well, I never expected to be a business writer or someone making fun of business lingo. I have a PhD in English. I'm formerly a poet once upon a time back in the day. And um, what happened was that I got lucky. In 1998, I was trying to ghostwrite a book for the president of a consulting firm looking at the customer experience. And someone that we knew at IBM sent over an article from a now-deceased Cornell University publication talking about the breakthroughs in brain science, how people really make their decisions, the fact that we are largely intuitive, sensory, emotional decision makers. And I thought, yes, of course we are. It's so obvious we are. And yet the business world fails to recognize this basic humanity about how we live and operate to make decisions and buy and everything else under the sun. And I read the article, and by the time I finished it, it was a fairly short article. By the time I finished reading the article, my fingers, my hands were trembling. I said, this is so cool. I don't know if I can make a living doing this. I don't know how I'm going to do this. I simply have to do this because it is so true, so profound, and so interesting. And that's where the path started. This I love so much. I actually was recording an episode yesterday, and we were, me and that guest, who's also a career coach and works in this similar leadership development space, saying that I don't know where we got the impression or the memo that 
you have to be a robot at work and that we shouldn't <laughs> treat people like people. <laughs> but <laughs> even when I'm coaching my clients, I'm like, don't forget, it's a real recruiter on the other end because um, my background's in recruiting and human resources. Sure. And while I definitely have uh, ran into the leaders who would love it if we treated everyone like a robot, it is you know, there's still that humanity and that connection. And I think I'm seeing a lot of that come back um, post pandemic or, you know, post the height of the pandemic. And I'm sure, do you feel like you're seeing that as well? People understanding that you can't really be successful without some empathy or something I want to ask you that I know I had on our list was, why do you think that's even such a phenomenon to begin with? Well, I, I think that a lot of things have been, you know, kind of boiling up in recent years. Obviously, the the Me Too movement, yeah. which to me yeah. should be fundamentally about, you know, show respect, uh, be decent, be be fair. Uh, yeah. Black Lives Matter. I mean, yes. George Floyd was killed less than two miles from my house here here in Minneapolis, St. Paul. Uh, so that obviously is a huge factor. Okay. Uh, we live in uh, kind of a new gilded age where the economic inequality. From mm-hmm. the top to the bottom mm-hmm. is, is vast. And then you pile on top of all of that, and there's many other factors. We didn't even get into offshoring and you know the, the gig economy <laughs> and all those things. But um, then, then the, yeah, there, there's the pandemic. Yeah. And people saying, wait a second, I'm an essential worker, but you're not treating me like I'm an essential human being. Um, and it leads to what's now being called the great resignation where people rethink yes. their careers. So, my God, there's a lot going on. And it, I think it's really bringing us all back to who we are as people, how are we feeling, what matters to us. And uh, I, I welcome that discussion. I think that's the discussion we should be having. Yeah, exactly. And you are an emotional intelligence expert and educator. So whether you're high EQ or low EQ, we all understand what we were saying at the beginning, that there is no shortcut to understanding people and and you really have to do it in order to be, I think, holistically successful. So you told us about how you became an EQ educator, which is really interesting. Um, But now I got to know, what advice do you have for people who may be more introverted or aren't really known for their social skills? Where can they start to uh, getting that higher EQ. Well, I mean, I think they may have even higher EQ than the people <laughs> who are dominating the conversation, quite honestly. Uh, they're just more polite about it and maybe not such a big, fierce ego. Um, so when you're not talking, you actually have more chance to be observant. Uh, so you can see the emotional patterns of the people who are holding the stage. Yeah. And uh, that might tell you whether they're a hothead you know, they show a lot of anger. It might be in terms of people's expressions, whether they're a little bit more blue and sad. Yeah. Uh, maybe they're a happy camper and oblivious to everybody <laughs> around them. Um, so you, you have a choice, basically. You're going to play into that kind of pattern you see. And that probably will work perfectly well because they'll be happy just to go with the flow. Or you might want to trim their sails or take the conversation in a different direction. Uh, That's your choice. But I think everything starts with, you know, understanding your audience, understanding yourself (laughs) and your needs and and hopes for what the conversation can bring about. 
Um, so that that's my short answer. If we want to pursue that further, I'm, I'm happy to do so. Oh, yeah. Actually, well, you were talking about being able to read the room and know your audience. So I do want us to talk about your book, um, which is for everyone listening. I and producer Jordan had a chance to read it, and we both think it's hilarious. In fact, I, I leaned over to Jordan. We were we were looking over it over coffee, and I'm like, how has this not been done before? And where was this book when I was a recent grad in college or, you know, just leaving college. So let's dive into your book, blah, 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 a snarky guide to office politics. And I was actually rereading parts of it last night and this morning. And it's just so refreshing to poke fun at the jargon and the fluff and the BS. So tell me, how did you come to write this book? Um, is it from personal experience or how, how were we bestowed such a treasure? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, you're very kind, first of all. Um, what happened was that I am host of a podcast called Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, and two guests in a row in subsequent weeks, without my prompting them, yeah. happened to mention that the conservative estimation is that at least 25% of all bosses are bullies. And I was just astonished by that statistic. Not that I didn't believe it, because I do. I had five bosses between my time in academia and when I started my company, and two of the five were bullies, so that's 40%. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it was certainly a credible number to me. But at the same time, uh, we both know that companies spend hordes of money on reorgs yes. uh, and yes. hordes of money on supposedly you know fixing their corporate culture or enhancing it. And yet you've got this emotional cancer right in your ranks if you have those many managers who are ruining people's lives and the overall morale, and, uh, and no one's doing anything about it. And I thought... After a few days, I woke up one morning about 4 a.m. I said, I got to do something about it. This just shouldn't stand. Mm -mm. And my first thought, of course, first impulse in many ways was to just you know rail against it, rant. But that's often not very effective. And I decided humor was the better way to go. Oh. Uh, because when you are telling a joke, probably there's a, there's a twist. There's an element of surprise. And that makes people pay attention. And then humor is expansive. It creates happiness. And sometimes you can slip in and make your point more easily in that way. And so I, I decided to go that route. And then I decided I want a contributor because I'm just one aging white guy. And I don't want to <laughs> I don't want to pretend that I can speak for everyone's experience in the workplace. Absolutely. So I invited people people in to give their own contributions as well. No, well, it is. It's truly hilarious. And like I said, producer Jordan, he can be a tough critic. And he's like, this is so effing funny. So this is I'm excited for everyone to get to read it. And you actually just brought up something that bosses are bullies. Likely, all of us have heard the phrase, people don't leave bad companies, they leave bad bosses. Yes. And I have my own hypothesis as to why bosses uh, or anyone in management feels like they need to be a bully. Uh, but I would love to hear, what do you think, Dan? Why do you think that is the, a common shared experience for all of us? Well, I mean, the book is funny, but I'm going to take this conversation at times into some pretty you know, deep, serious waters. Perfect. If you ask me why I'm an emotions expert, I'd probably have to go all the way back to childhood uh, mm -hmm. in a couple of ways. One is my family moved from St. Paul, Minnesota, U.S. to Italy when I was a six-year-old boy. My dad worked for the 3M company. He was going to be running a film processing plant. We were suddenly on the Italian Riviera. Now, that sounds really lovely, and it was in many ways. Uh, at the same time, I was an outsider. 
Uh, I didn't know Italian at first. I went to Italian first grade in a fishing village. I waited all day for the math unit so I had something I could participate in. So that experience of being the outsider, uh, in that case, literally the introvert in that I couldn't join in the conversation mm-hmm. with my classmates, uh, that was certainly a profound influence. And there was one more. As we left Europe to go back to the U.S., I'm now seven years old, and this is where it gets very serious. Uh, we stopped at the Dachau concentration camp just north of Munich. Mm-hmm. And I remember it really clearly. I remember being a seven-year-old boy, and there's a couple ovens that they left intact, and holding my hand on the door of one of those ovens and looking inside, and the large blow-up photographs mm-hmm. of you know, you know, the the teeth, the the you know, the hair, all the all these horrible, horrible things. And certainly, you know, what the Jewish people experience. There, there are lots of other yeah. people who have suffered atrocities. So I'm not meaning to exclude oh, anybody yeah. else. Yeah. But if you want to get back to your question and talk about bullies, um, yeah, you know, Stalin was around longer, Joseph Stalin, so he managed to kill even more people. But Hitler certainly qualifies as one of the all-time bullies. Oh, yeah, he's definitely and what we up know there. about what we know about Hitler is that he was very insecure. Uh, you know, he did not have a successful career as an architect student. Uh, he, you know, got gassed in World War I, went through a lot of trauma. Um, you know, he, he wasn't going anywhere in life, but he found that he could make recompense by projecting hatred and stirring up envy and desire for revenge. And I, I'm sure that doesn't account for every bully, but I think it accounts for quite a few to one extent oh, or another. I, I even look back at things I've done in the past, and it's funny, just the magic of social media getting to reconnect with people in high school you lose touch with. And I was thinking about something the other day and I was just reminded of my own personal growth journey and how I used to completely act out of insecurity. I wanted so desperately to be one of the popular girls. So I would, um, I mean, a lot of it was self-loathing, but almost trying to mimic what they did. So if they were rude to somebody in class, um, not all the time, but sometimes I would be rude to that person too. And you just realize it it comes from such a a sad, lonely place in your own in your own heart. So no, I I my hypothesis we are aligned. I think it always comes out of insecurity. And then it's interesting too because that brings in the conversation of a lot of ego work. What have you really seen or or observed about how we act out of our ego and what we can really do to remedy it to the best we can. Well, I mean, obviously people are so often in a hunt for prestige and power. Mm -hmm. Uh, I love the comment that someone once made that there's really just basically two motivations. Uh, We want to feel good about ourselves or we want to attract allies uh, because then we're higher up in the pyramid. We're, we're safer. You know, we got security, we got a ring around us. Mm -hmm. Um, So is there a way in which, you know, ego can be satisfied by actually being subsumed into a we and the we can be stronger, more accomplished than that person can ever get to on their own. Maybe if they can make that calculation, uh, and I know that's being kind of Machiavellian about it, but if they can make that calculation, maybe they could back off a bit and, and you know make the adjustment in life. It makes me curious because about a month into and some change uh, in the pandemic, I left a role where I, I didn't feel supported, seen, emotionally connected to leadership. And 
I was telling my husband at the time, I'm like, is it weird that I feel way more empowered, at, like in the, in the comfort of our our small home? Um, because I didn't feel like I was like, I wasn't seeking as much external validation because I just I couldn't get my receptors just weren't there. So I'm curious, based off of podcast guests and, and just anecdotal evidence, do you feel like you've seen people more empowered in the last year to really stand up for what they want and really doing much more introspection and and saying, okay, is this really the life I want to be living? Is this the person I want to be married to? Yeah, no, I, I think a lot more introspection is going on because it is not just, you know, this particular job or this company. I mean, mm-hmm. people who are thinking about do I retire? Do I transition? Uh, do I want to even be in the sector of the economy? Yes. Uh, where, where was I originally headed in life anyway? And how is it that I'm I'm here? Um, you know, so if you're going to talk about belonging, and you know, it could be the the bully and the ego monster is is trying to find a way to belong, uh, but we're all trying to find a way to belong, really. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. part of that belonging should be certainly back to ourselves <laughs> and what is our what is our our yeah. value system. You know, reason why I really got into business and why that article so excited me in part was I thought it was so liberating. Uh, I thought it was a chance to actually be a human being. And I didn't see a lot of that necessarily in the business world. Mm-hmm. And so I sometimes joke that, you know, there's this comment that Woodrow Wilson during World War I said, well, America entered the world, the war to make the world safe for uh, democracy. And I joke that I've been trying to make the world safe for capitalism or save <laughs> capitalism, save capitalism from itself because uh, it, it, it has, I mean, uh, you know, socialism doesn't necessarily work, unfortunately, given human nature. Uh, but capitalism, if that's our only option, is, is pretty flawed if it's just as greedy and awful as it sometimes is. Oh, my God. Uh, you don't even know this. You're touching on so many personal points that are going on in the background. So um, a few questions I have for you. The first being because you actually do have experience going overseas and living elsewhere. I know that's the most terrifying part for me. What I, I wouldn't have any, for the most part, any friends, uh, and I would have to really start from scratch. And can you tell me more about that experience, having to survive grade school, which is hard enough as it is, but then having to do it in the circumstances in which you did? Sure. I mean, I also studied at Oxford. I, I've spoken in, what, over 25 countries. I've uh, visited probably 85 countries. Oh, well then, like Dan, that. by all means, pull from every, <laughs> <laughs> pull from all your experiences. <laughs> um, I think the most essential thing is that it only takes one other person for you to feel yeah. a whole lot better. I mean, you know, you mentioned earlier the fact that, you know, People leave companies because of the boss. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also stay at companies, mm-hmm. not necessarily because of the boss, but because they have a best friend at work. Yeah. Yes. And that can yes. make all the difference for them. I mean, if I am traveling, even if I don't know anybody around, but I have a companion and I feel comfortable with and enjoy the company of that companion, that begins to make all the difference already. And then you relax, and then when you're relaxed, it's amazing how things work better. And then you're 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 more approachable. You know, it's it's yeah. just like a guy dating. If he's too eager to date, <laughs> a woman probably rightly says, "Nah, I don't think so." Even if he seems fairly uh, you know attractive or appealing in some ways, just totally. there, there's an edginess there that just makes you wonder and worry. Uh, you exactly. don't want a predator type, you know, in your life. 
No, we don't. Okay. Yeah, we don't. We don't, and we shouldn't. Um, so, I, I yeah, I think these things are are possible. Just don't put yourself in harm's yeah. way. Realize mm. that you're going to approach things incrementally. There are always other people. I mean, I once came across the comment. Someone said, "You fall in love at the point when you've reached a dead end." And you feel oh. like you've taken yourself as far as you can. And now you realize to really expand and enhance your life, you should open up to that. other possibilities. Because maybe you were just chugging along, you were caught up in the job or this or that, yeah. but suddenly the job's not satisfying enough. And maybe you can change the job, but maybe you also want to change some other <laughs> things in your life. Maybe you need someone to share it with. Yeah. Um, and so I think there are moments, and it doesn't have to be a dead end, but it just might be a moment where you're looking for another gear. And my point really is that there's always people looking for another gear, another experience, totally. another connection. So is it a little bit of a gulp? Sure. When I started my company, I moved to San Diego. I had very little money. I had a big idea, but no track record, no Rolodex, no venture capitalist behind me. Mm -hmm. uh, in many ways, I was scared to death, but uh, I was empowered by this is going to be an adventure. And just hang in there. <laughs> and I know for me, that's what I, my husband, I cling to feeling. He tends to cling to facts, which is why I think we're a good balance. <laughs> but um, I really want to pick your brain that, about working in academia, because I think there is this big misconception based off the career coaching clients I have. I personally have never worked in higher education or academia or research, anything of the sort. But I remember maybe buying into the smoke and mirrors that it's so prestigious and everyone is just hungry to learn and it, there's no office politics. And obviously, I have since learned that it is far from that. Um, can you share a little bit about your experience and what you learned from working in academia? Sure. Well, first of all, I actually grew up in a college town, Northfield, Minnesota, Carleton College and St. Olaf Colleges. So although my father was uh, at the 3M company, my mom worked in the administration of one of those two colleges. All my friends were uh, faculty brats, without exception. <laughs> um, and then I have you know, two master's degrees, a BA, a PhD, and some time teaching. So yes, I know lots of things. Yes. And yes, let's disabuse people of the notion that there's no office politics in academia, mm -hmm. that it's all just about the wonderful pursuit of knowledge. Of course, there is office politics. Mm -hmm. uh, so much so that a friend of mine, she was getting her PhD in Spanish at the University of Chicago. She couldn't put together a dissertation committee. She needed three professors. She could only find two who were on speaking terms within the department. And she was, by the way, a wonderful person. So it certainly didn't involve her. It was so bad that they couldn't get to a third person. So they had two of them, and then they got someone from Notre Dame, you know, what, 90 miles to the east, that agreed to be on the committee. Um, it goes back to, I don't quote Henry Kissinger very often, but he has one very funny line, which he says, why are the turf battles in academia so intense? And the answer to the joke is, because the stakes are so low. Oh. And... <laughs> It's a great line because it, it's very true in a lot of ways, uh, because a lot of the things that you write and research really are pretty uh, esoteric and narrow and the world will not care. Uh, mm -hmm. You care maybe because you need tenure, maybe because it's just the rabbit hole you went down. But one of the real problems with academia is it's terribly lonely often. Uh, oh. I left it when I was just, what, 31? Uh, at one point earlier, I'd been the youngest member of a university where I taught before I went back to get my PhD. 
But as you get older, the students are not your colleagues. <laughs> mm-hmm. They are they are mm-hmm. younger than you. You're giving them grades. You're their boss. All these sorts of things are going on. When I was happiest teaching, it was when I was teaching a creative writing class, and we just pulled the chairs in a circle. And I did reserve the right to talk last, but I gave the students complete freedom as to what they wrote their essays about. They can make them intellectual. They can make them personal. Uh, and many of them were very personal. And I was so uh, thrilled and honored that they would dare to feel like they were safe in that classroom and that they mm-hmm. could dare bring that kind of subject matter forward. Yeah. And at the end of the semester, and this was certainly the highlight of my teaching experience, about a third of the class came up and said, this was, Dan, categorically the best class we have ever taken as a student. And thank you so much. So that's what I enjoy. I, I like the collegiality, the, the companionship, the joining forces, the collaboration. That That's what I enjoyed. A lot of times, on the other hand, you have – I was in the English department. You, you have freshman English. That means oh, the students don't that. really want to be there. It's a distribution requirement. Uh, it may be an 8 o'clock in the morning class. Mm-hmm. You're pulling teeth <laughs> to get answers. Um, so, yes, I think if you really love learning – it's a great yeah. place to be, um, but there are tenure battles, <laughs> there are turf battles, mm-hmm. there are personality conflicts, and there's a lot of isolation. I, I had a professor at Brown University who said to me, I have spent my whole life with my nose in a book and or a bottle. Oh, and wow. That is one of the sad things that I discovered, that that isolation means there is a pretty serious drinking problem at a lot of universities because you have a lot of free time, a lot of independence, uh, a lot of time mm-hmm. when you're not accountable. And mm-hmm. um, it's not to say there isn't drinking elsewhere in the world. There obviously <laughs> is. I think a lot of executives late in their oh, career yeah. may be a little too fond of martinis. Oh, absolutely. Um, <laughs> yeah, but uh, uh, certainly, certainly it's an issue in academia. Wow. That is so telling and sad. Uh, interestingly, the, the coaching client I'm thinking of right now, she's leaving because she said it is so lonely. Um, So it's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting just to see how uh, that has been a theme. But you you can really tell the wonderful professors, though, because they just, you know, whether it was my colleagues or a professor I took, they just, they loved teaching. They loved learning. They liked, loved the conversation. They had really the proverbial twinkle in the eye. And and when that happens, that, that is a delightful thing. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, it's yeah. I can already see because my favorite college class, he also had us go in a circle and it was just free and there were very, very few. It was pretty much unbridled. Create. It was a communications course, but it, it was one place where I felt safe to explore different ideas related to race, politics, uh, cultural commentary. So I, I'm happy that your students still got to experience that. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you my favorite moment as a student, <clears throat> excuse me, at, at Oxford University, they have lectures, but they're free. Um, and they're also, uh, you know, optional. You don't have to go. And quite honestly, most of them get canceled <laughs> almost immediately because the subject matter is boring and or the professor is quite boring. And, uh, you know, so very few of them last even the eight week term. On the other hand, when I was there, there was a man named Valentine Cunningham. First of all, what a lovely name. I was just thinking that. Yes. (laughs) And Valentine wore a jean jacket underneath his black academic robe. And Valentine Cunningham was brilliant and funny and just 
a delight. And going to his lectures, which were never canceled, going to his mm -hmm. lectures was like going to a rock concert. If the normal lecture, if it survived at all, might manage to get to eight to 10 students who hung in there, his were 150 plus and standing room only. That's how oh good my, they were. Oh my God. No, you're not joking. That is like going to House of Blues and, and yeah, singing. Yeah, I mean, okay, yeah. that is really cool. <laughs> Yeah, it was like okay, we got we got Bono on stage. I mean, that's, it felt like that. People <laughs> people were so excited to come to to the class. Oh, I, I mean, love that. So love so that. there are wonderful moments, but there is a downside as well. And so I'm I'm trying to be faithful to both sides of the equation. Absolutely, and I think that that's the one thing I've learned with this podcast, but even outside of this podcast. The grass is not always greener, even entrepreneurship, and and you know this as well, people can mistake it to be glamorous and very flexible. And and while there's flexibility, I'm like, it's not that. I, I just said, and you're also a writer. So I think my mom, she's like, but you're a writer. And doesn't that mean you just work at night for two hours and you can lollygag the rest of the day? I'm like, I wish that is how it worked. But it can often be seasons of um, overworking and and just and sometimes even worry trying to make sure that you're going to secure enough work. So I think there's always two sides to every coin for sure. Yeah, no, having been both a writer and an entrepreneur, I would say that it's a bit like the line that Janis Joplin famously sings: "Freedom means nothing left to lose." Um, so it is exhilarating and it is stressful beyond belief. And you just bottled up my entire existence, Dan. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, before we get into the rapid fire, where can everyone snag um, blah, blah, blah and, and your, latest, your latest endeavor? Sure. They would have to go to Amazon. And I, I did that because I'm not sure the bookstores, given the Delta variant, no. would be open necessarily. I do love... No. Independent bookstores, I don't want anyone to think otherwise. Of course, yeah. But um, that just proved to be the easiest recourse. And so there is a famous singer named Dan Hill, uh, a uh, Canadian, uh, Afro-Canadian or African-American Canadian. I'm not yeah. quite sure how to say that. Yeah. Uh, I guess African-Canadian. I was going to say. Like, um, he had a very famous song back in the day called Sometimes When We Touch. So if you go to Amazon, you would probably see his name first if you just put in <laughs> Dan Hill. <laughs> so you'd have to probably put in Dan Hill and blah, blah, blah. Uh, I have a lot of other books, as you've alluded to, yes. actually mm -hmm. eight others. Uh, I've raised a large family. And um, you can find those on Amazon as well, typically. Or my website is the obligatory three W's and sensorylogic.com, mm -hmm. like your five senses. And on my website, yes, I have, uh, you know, an easy way for people to see what, what's my range of, of books I've published. Oh, yes. And, and go guys, order or buy them. It is. It's very good. Very funny. It's not fluff. Um, believe me, I can spot a fluffy book. And I, I it was truly a page turner where I was like, what more is there? What more is there? So uh, definitely check that out. And with that, for the rapid fire, we have three questions. And the first is, tell me a time either professionally or personally that you realize the right thing and the hard thing can be the same. Sure. Uh, something very definitely comes to mind. I was going to be a speaker at a conference in Houston the evening before, as it sometimes happens. There was a speaker's dinner. Uh, there was just, I think, five of us who were there along with the organizer. Only one woman. After a couple of drinks, one of the guys started making comments. They were slightly incoherent. 
but it sure sounded to me like he was basically condoning date rape. And I could not believe it at first. And then I was pretty certain that was what was happening. And the only woman there was getting, you know, understandably very uncomfortable. And I was not happy either, mind you. And I sat there and said, I don't want to make a scene, but I don't want to just let this pass because it shouldn't. No. Uh, I got to find a way to speak up. Otherwise, I'm going to really, you know, feel like I'm, I'm guilty here. And this woman yeah. also needs some support. And she was the youngest member of the group. So I wasn't sure she was going to, you know, dare to be the one to speak up. So I sat there for a bit. And then I thought of a very famous line by Abraham Lincoln, who said, if you want to know the character of a man's mm-hmm. soul, give him power. And so I said it kind of apropos of nothing going on in the conversation, just waiting for a dead spot. And the guy, to my amazement, stopped, kind of thought about what I said, kind of didn't quite acknowledge what where he'd been headed with his comments, but apologized all the same. And then we switched topics. And the woman relaxed. I relaxed. Um, You know, I didn't seek the guy out for a conversation the next day at the conference, (laughs) believe me. Uh, I I was happy to get it to a draw. But, um, you know, we got to a better place at least. Let's put it that way. I really applaud you and I hope everyone listening that is always the standard if you have the chance to speak up you do especially if because it, it was man to man um, and sometimes people are more likely are more willing to listen to someone who looks like them or, or has similarities so but regardless sadly, sadly yes yeah yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> and what is the one thing about wealth management and or business that few people know but you wish everyone knew uh, about wealth management um it's probably more about the money you save than the money you you spend <laughs> um you know there's of course mm-hmm. the famous book about mm-hmm. the millionaire millionaire next door um, you know, everyone's going to have different motivations why right. they're, they're trying to accrue wealth. For me, it was first and foremost about security. I, I wanted as much freedom as possible to do what I want to do. I wasn't trying to use the wealth to impress anybody. Um, 100%. so, uh, you know, you have to understand what your motivations are, but, um, that's mine. I think that could be a lot of people's, I'd like to think it could be. Oh, it could definitely be, uh, and that's something we always joke. My my father-in-law always jokes. I'm really great at making money and figuring out new side projects. And my husband is a phenomenal saver. Um, but we thankfully have both learned from each other over the last six years. So uh, I think I think that's great advice. And the final question is complete this sentence. The best way to handle a toxic work environment is to blank. Would be to show appreciation. Uh, William James, the uh, brother of the famous novelist Henry James, said, "What people want in life most of all is appreciation. We wow. want acknowledgement. We yeah. exist. That we bring some value. That we contribute." That- and I'm not saying you're, you're showing appreciation for the toxic work environment. <laughs> I, I'm saying you're trying to lessen it uh, because I'd like to think I, I, there are instances Hitler would certainly qualify where I would not try to appease a bully. But there are other cases where if I can recognize that fundamentally they're insecure uh, by showing appreciation for the things even that person does well. Presuming there's there's something where I'm not lying through my teeth to offer the appreciation. Yes. It yes. might just soften them or make them open up or 
genuflect in some way that they're then going to be not only nicer to me, for instance, but to the other people around. And uh, if that could happen, what a wonderful thing. And to co-sign that piece of advice, Dan, I have an an older episode about uh, micromanagers. And that is something I did a little trial and error. And I realized that, again, most micromanagers or bad bosses in general are working out of a place of insecurity. And once I just started to show appreciation, this person specifically, um, busting her butt at home and at work. And I'm, I, I was like, you know, I wonder if she feels like no one thanks her and ding, 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 if that wasn't what it was. And after that, we had a much, much better relationship and we were just able to communicate a lot better together. So definitely agree with you there. Well, that's one of the definitions in the book was the the promise of autonomy and Mm -hmm. the diabolical definition, as you may recall, is being micromanaged only part time. Because sometimes, sadly, that's as much as we can hope for. Oh, completely. And you were able to tell everyone where to keep up with you. Um, Are there any other places to keep up with you on social media that we can follow? Um, I do do a blog, which has the same title as my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. Um, And the, the podcast is on something called the New Books Network, which is the world's largest book review platform. So I am interviewing, you know, other authors. So that's additional wealth of learning opportunities, obviously, based on who I'm talking to. Mm-hmm. So I would really say, yes, it's the it's the books, uh, it's the the podcast, and uh, once the pandemic is behind us, hopefully mm-hmm. it's uh, back out there to give speeches. I do have a few coming up, but uh, a lot got canceled or postponed. Absolutely. Now, and and you've just been left to sit with your thoughts and and reflect. Well, it has really been such a pleasure. I'm excited to continue to follow your work. Um, And any parting words you want to leave uh, our audience today? Uh, Be kind to yourself. Yeah. Um, Yeah. My my, uh, parents once said when I was growing up, and I I didn't take it so seriously at the time, but I do now. I said, the easiest way to drive yourself crazy is to compare yourself to others. Mm. Uh, Because there's always someone who's, you know, brighter, more attractive, you know, faster on the tennis court, whatever the case may be. And you just can't do that to yourself. I mean, do the best you can in a way that you enjoy and find pleasure and meaning. Uh, but yes, the endless comparisons and in an age of social media, mm-hmm. this oh, just gets brutal. all the more pernicious. And you, so, I, yeah, yeah, don't do it to yourself. <laughs> I cannot agree more. Uh, that message was meant for me. I needed a gentle reminder. So, Dan, thank you so much. And for everyone listening, I will be back in just a bit. Such a fun conversation. I really enjoyed this. If you guys love Dan as much as I did, please make sure to pick up his book and we will be doing a giveaway around the holiday season. So I will be giving that out. Uh, so stick, stay tuned uh, to the Instagram feed, officepolitics.co, or you can even follow me at Jasmine Reed Clark. And with that, uh, if you guys would like please leave a review, subscribe. It really helps my channel and I will talk to you guys next week. Bye.